After months of contentious primaries and controversy, the 2016 Democratic presidential nominating process came to a close in Philadelphia. Nominating the first female candidate for president of a major political party in the United States, the Democratic establishment sought to facilitate unity amidst the enmity that had been simmering between Hillary Clinton's supporters and progressive allies of independent-turned-Democrat Bernie Sanders, a senator from Vermont. A WikiLeaks release of emails confirming some suspicions of an anti-Sanders, pro-establishment narrative only served to inflame the tensions that eventually erupted on the convention floor. In the middle of this thicket was Pia Deshpande, a then 17-year-old, now graduating senior at Columbia University, who made an impressive run to become a delegate to the Democratic National Convention that summer. In this episode, Pia walks us through the path that led her to that point and all that has come for her since. Enrollment at the University of Texas and then a transfer to Columbia University as a political science major, an abiding curiosity of the American political system, and participation in that system as a regular voter. Pia shares the experience and impact of her first vote in November of 2016 and the aftermath of that election on the campus at the University of Texas. As the daughter of parents who immigrated to the United States from India, she also talks about the different paths her parents took with their own engagement in the political system, paths that were shaped, in part, both by her father's survival in one of the buildings hit during the September 11th attacks, as well as subsequent backlash she and her family felt as Hindu Indians living in the United States. Ultimately, Pia is a passionate voter, wants others to engage in politics, but recognizes the barriers to participation that many people face. Having experienced firsthand high costs and barriers in the process of voting absentee in particular, Pia recognizes how, even today, the vote is not something that is self-evident or a given for so many in the United States of America. Welcome to this week's episode of What Voting Means to Me. Welcome. Thank you so thank you so much for taking the time to do this amidst what I'm sure is a really kind of wild transition. Why don't we just get started? Um, I'd love for you to sort of generally tell listeners a little bit about yourself, sort of whatever you feel called or, or comfortable sharing. And then I love diving right in with that sort of first question about sort of your first memory of democracy or your first experience with it. So yeah, anywhere you'd like to begin is fine by me. Hi, I'm Pia. Uh, I'm a senior at Columbia University. Uh, I'm from Texas, so I lived there since I was eight through 18. Uh, and I've been active in politics for a while, kind of not of my own volition. My father was always really active in politics, um, not as a candidate, but he definitely encouraged me to pay attention to what was happening. The news was always on in our house, like all the time. Sunday <laughs> Saturday morning, we watched cartoons, uh, which was my, my <laughs> Sunday morning, we watched the news and we learned about politics, which is my dad's compromise. So we each got one morning. My mother has not been super politically involved of her own volition. Um, both my parents are 
immigrants from India. And so I think they both had very different interpretations of the American mm. political system and if it was for them or not. Mm-hmm. I think my mom feels a little uncomfortable being an American and like what that means and whether or not she is included, especially because of recent rhetoric out of the presidency. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think she's super active in part because of that. Mm. I'm curious, when you were a kid, do you ever remember go into the polls with with your parents or did, did they ever sort of take you to different sort of civic activities around around where you were living? When I was a kid, the first thing that I remember was the Obama-McCain campaign. Okay. I remember that my parents didn't like Bush. I remember not really knowing why. For context, my, my father was in the building when 9-11 happened. He's fine. Oh, um, wow. That experience, and we're Indian Americans, we had kind of this like strange reaction to it where we were really close to the trauma. And in all honesty, I don't think I was. I was three when it happened. So I was pretty removed from the entire experience and my family wasn't. Yeah. And, you know, I think there was, there were circumstances where racial profiling felt particularly insensitive to everyone. But yeah. on the basis of like my family had been through the event that had triggered a lot of the xenophobia, you know? Yeah. Um, so I know that my parents didn't like Bush. And then I knew that they liked Obama and I wasn't really sure why I was eight, (laughs) Um, but I would watch the debates with my dad. And so I remember watching them. uh, And I remember when my father was voting, me and my mom accompanied him to the polls and stood in line. Um, And that was really fun. And I think I got an Obama t-shirt, you know, um, that my dad bought for me. And I thought the buttons were really neat. I didn't really know what was on them. I just liked the design. So I I liked the theater of politics when I was younger. Mm -hmm. I think I saw it more more of us like entertainment, which is perhaps a chilling thing to hear now. But you know, when I, when I was eight, I thought it was just something really fun. And I didn't really understand the underpinnings of it. Yeah. Well, for what it's worth, we have that in common. Um, in a future episode, I'm going to actually sort of flip the tables and have myself be interviewed. And I will share with folks all about the obsession that I had with the, the theater of politics as like a 10 year old. So oh my gosh, that's so wonderful that you were able to share those experiences um, with your dad and watch debates and go with them to vote. And oh my gosh, I, when you mentioned about sort of his being in the building on September 11th, and then of course, all of the the awful racial profiling that happened in the wake of that. I'm so sorry that your family had to go through that. That's so, that's so challenging. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, certainly. I mean, and I think I want to point out that Muslim Americans had it much harder than we do. So like, my family are Hindu, um, mm-hmm. and often people don't realize that, you know, because the, the differences between Muslim and Hindu people ethnically are kind of vague, mm-hmm. uh, especially for some white Americans to parse through. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I want to point out that Muslim Americans went through a much harder time than what we went through, mm-hmm. but it's still it's frustrating. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it, it's something you said was interesting to me. Um, you were, you know, quite young, young when it happened. You said about three years old. I, I think it's an, important to note that sort of, we now have a sense that children can also sort of take on the traumas of their parents as well. So I would imagine it, it you know, it might be something that that you were navigating, even if you didn't know it fully or completely. But I'm so glad that your family is okay. And um, your parents are are they still back in Texas? They are. They are in Austin. Okay. All right. Oh my gosh. Okay. So you're at Columbia, and I believe that you had mentioned to me that you do study political science. Is that your your major? So yeah. you're going to be graduating here in a couple of weeks. 
under very di different circumstances <laughs> than you would have anticipated. But yeah, this is another fascinating sort of democracy biography question. Um, I would love to know sort of your journey towards that path of studying political science and, and what it is specifically you're interested in. Would love to sort of know that part of your journey as well. Of course. So me being a political science major was not expected, uh, at least for me. So my dad always used to make a joke that like I would be a senator or something because I was going to go to law school and I was good at arguing. So there'd be a argument in my family about whether or not I should go to law school. And if I won the argument, you know, I, I got to argue that I didn't want to be a lawyer. Then my parents would be like, oh, but you're good at arguing. So you should go to law school. And if I lost the argument, then they would win. And so then I should go to law school. <laughs> oh <laughs> my God. Kind of centered around that, which was all like in good fun. Uh, but, you know, I, I went through middle school and high school, not really knowing what I wanted to do, just knowing that I liked a lot of things and society was really interesting to me. And I felt like I didn't have a good enough grasp of any one particular topic mm -hmm. to, I wanted to do that for the rest of my life, which when you're 18, it kind of feels like that's the question you're being asked, which is a lot. Mm -hmm. I was a delegate to the Democratic National Convention when I was 18. Oh, which, wow. Yeah. Which really kind of changed my perspective. I had a AP government teacher uh, when I was a senior in high school um, that, you know, uh, took us through the normal runs, taught us about all the different structures of American government. Uh, and he used to argue with the students a lot as part of the class. And I think that I was one of the more feisty people at 8 a.m. Uh, <laughs> eventually, what he said was, essentially, like, you can keep arguing, but if you're not involved in politics, like, I don't understand the validity of your claim. So, like, get involved or stop making random critiques. Wow. 17 at the time and very petulant and annoyed. And so I remember texting my dad and being like, I'm going to a meeting. <laughs> like, I'm, so I keep fighting with this guy every day in the morning. Uh, I'm going to go to a meeting. And so from there, I kind of just got shuffled along. So I showed up to a meeting. It was mostly um, men and women in their late 40s or early 50s, sometimes older, mm -hmm. in Travis County discussing at the time the Travis uh, County Convention. And, you know, when I just walked up and I was like, can I, can I do anything? I'm 18, but I can like run pamphlets. I can, I can mm -hmm. help staff if you want. Uh, and this man came up to me and asked me a ton of really rapid fire questions that made me uncomfortable. And I don't think he meant to make me uncomfortable. Oh. It was, he essentially said, you're really young and you're involved. It's great. And I said, thank you. This is the first time I've really done anything like this. So I feel like you're jumping the gun a bit. Um, and then he, he mentioned that I could go to the state convention, even if I was an 18. And I was like, well, that's really cool. I mean, I can't vote in the primaries, but if I could go, that would be such a cool experience. Uh, and Texas, the Texas Democratic Party, and I'm, I think other uh, local chapters, though it depends, has a pop, you can get elected via popular vote or this kind of diversity cast or affirmative action ballot. Um, and so he asked me a bunch of questions like, well, you're a woman, you're a woman of color. Do you have a disability? Are you queer? Like he went through like a list of a scale I would be scored on, right? Oh my God. Um, you know, uh, and it was purely for the like utility, like for just to, to let me know how I would essentially be scored. And because I don't think he believed I could get a popular vote because no one knew who I was. Mm. But it, it, it put, put things in perspective. I was like, I didn't like being reduced to mm. various identity groups he was, uh, kind of pinning me on. And every time I said like, oh no, I, I don't have a disability. He'd be like, oh man, okay. Well, we'll go on to the next one. And I was like, oh my God. 
response. I feel like that's demeaning to people with disabilities and it's demeaning to like, you know, individuals to be reduced to one category. Um, but, you know, it, I, I quickly got used to the kind of fast paced business-like way people discussed politics. Mm-hmm. And then quickly I went to the county convention uh, and there came the moment to vote for who went to the state convention. I was excited and I raised my hand to volunteer and like, we were not contested. No, like there was no competition. And so I went, went to the democratic state convention. Texas is a Republican mm-hmm, state. Mm-hmm. This county is really heavily democratic. Um, but you know, I wasn't surprised that there wasn't a lot of fighting over who went to the state convention. Um, and I think that people were generally pretty fond of me because of the novelty that I expressed. Like I, I was really young where most people were older. I think the young people, involved in the constituency were excited to have someone vaguely around their age even if it was like I was like a decade off um and so then I was in this strange situation where I hadn't finished high school but I knew I was going to go to the state convention in April right this was great then someone let me know hey they're going to pick delegates for the national convention at the state convention and this time it's going to be competitive do you want to run and then people a lot of people encouraged me to run um, and it was around the same time that I learned that my AP government professor or teacher was running for to go to the Republican National Convention. Oh, my God. Like, yeah, I want to run. Like, I don't know. It was, And this was not even really anything against him. I think this was a personal vendetta I had for, you know, not being able to fight him in class. <laughs> everything everyone else was doing. And so I ran and I asked people in my high school to make me stickers and merch and they did it for free the campaign sticker I had a a woman who was active in the party like driving around because I didn't have a car yet so she would drive me to like places where I could talk I gave a speech in New Braunfels that was so bad it was I mean it worked so I guess it was I I think now as someone who is I hope a little bit better at public speaking I look back at the speech I'm like oh but I was wearing pants with flowers on them that were my were dress pants but they were hip and cool and someone commented when I got up that like, you know, those were unique pants. And then I was like, I'm a millennial and I'm wearing young person clothing. And I made a whole bit around it. I was like, I'm young and I inspire change and da, 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 and da, da, da. And I will advocate for these things on the fly. Um, and people really liked it, which was crazy. It was crazy at such a young age before I could even vote. Like I was still 17 to be engaging with politics in this way, seeing how people responded to me. That was the same speech where after I shook some hands, talked to some people, someone came up to me and asked me whether my last name, Deshpande, was a terrorist thing. Uh, yeah. So, oh my and this goodness. was, yeah, like it's, okay, it's a, it's a Hindi last name. It means land accountant. I'm sorry to disappoint. It's like the name of a profession. Is that what you were able to say to this person? Like, like, yeah, this is what I, it means. Yeah. And, and I wish I said it with more spunk or attitude, but I think I was just really confused, disarmed, maybe is the right word. And so as soon as he said that to me, I was like, no, that's not what it means. It actually means land accountant. I left. Like, I was like, Claudia, I'd, I think we, we should go because I felt uncomfortable. And of course. I don't really know. I think that discomfort makes sense. I wasn't really worried about him doing anything. I just felt very out of place. Lo and behold, with a lot of driving around, them campaigning, I got elected to go to the DNC, I think in part because of the novelty of like who I was, but I got elected on the popular role I, I won, like, as a majority. Like, I, I, I won, which was crazy. It was wild to me. It, it felt like something that had been taken out of my control. Like, it was, it was a wonderful thing. And I think 
a really amazing opportunity a lot of people don't get to have. Mm-hmm. But I had, I had no, not in a million years did I think I was going to go to the DNC when I was 18. I was just kind of playing around, um, being like, oh, this will be a fun experience. It'd be cool to campaign. Like, it'd be cool to uh, talk to people and get to know them and get to know other people who are politically active. And then suddenly I just like won the election to go to, the, to, go to Philadelphia, which was really fun. Uh, and it was the first time I had traveled alone at that point, like flew in a plane by myself. And I wow. went to Philadelphia for the Democratic National Convention. Wow. Wow. So to, so to give some t- temporal context, this would have been in 2016 for Hillary Clinton's nomination. Yes. 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 Wow. And of course, it was a historic nomination. We're nominating, you know, the first, you know, a female candidate to the the presidency. Wow. That is such a cool story. Yeah. And, and at the time for full transparency, I was a I was a Bernie delegate going to the convention. Mm-hmm. But all delegates, regardless of, um, you know, what candidate you were going under at that point, you voted for the nominee, um, though some delegates might disagree with me on that. But like I for the nominee. Mm-hmm. And yeah, no, there was a lot of tension there that was evident between the Bernie and Hillary supporters in the crowd that I felt kind of alien to. I knew that I had a slight preference for Bernie over Hillary, but I knew that I, as I was walking around, the animosity was something I did not expect because I was so naive on both sides. But it was surreal to be there. They put the Texas Democrats away in the back because like who were not that significant electorally for the Democrats, oh. at least at that point. But we still got, I still got to be in the presence of a lot of really important politicians, even if I was closer to the back of the stadium. Wow. And so all of this, if I, if I, um, again, sort of to to put it in some context, all of this is happening before you've cast a vote. Yeah. And that felt especially weird and kind of, kind of like I was cheating the system, which I wasn't. It was perfectly legal for me to do what I was doing. Yeah, of course. Uh, But it, it did feel strange to be at this convention representing people where I had never voted myself, you know, and that was surreal. Uh, and I would vote my first election I would ever vote in was a 2016 presidential election. And I'd vote on the university of Texas's campus and I'd stay up all night watching the results came in, come in. And mm. yeah, it was a really profound experience. I really want to dig into that vote in particular. Um, if I may, though, before we do that, sort of to a little bit build a little bit of suspense, because sort of I, I, I think the folks that I've talked talked to so far, the first vote sort of has such a profound sort of meaning for that. I remember my first vote was incredibly meaningful um, to me. So I, I, I do really want to uh, make sure that we get into that. But I wonder if we could just talk a little bit more about sort of what your so you started off at a college, a University of Texas, you said? Mm-hmm. University of Texas, and then you transferred to Columbia. Yes. Yes. And so you're studying political science there. What's what's that like? And, and um, you know, how have your experiences been, you know, you have this uh, experience with the political system as a participant, as as kind of a candidate. I mean, you're, you're putting yeah. in all this work, <laughs> campaigning, um, putting yourself out there, getting a sense of what it feels like in the raw, I guess maybe would be a, a way I'm, I'm sort of hearing it. And then you go to college and you are studying this sort of what, what was that experience like for you? Yeah. So even after the DNC, I was not sure what I would major in. And kind of my friends pointed mm-hmm. me, it's like, you seem to be interested in politics. <laughs> Just I, a little this, bit. <laughs> yeah. This could be a good fit for you. Um, but the DNC, as amazing as it was, made me a bit wary of like the career politician, um, just because you got to meet people and talk to them off camera and their people. 
And sometimes they don't know the answers to your questions. And sometimes they don't care about you enough to answer them, you know? And it was strange being in that environment. And now it makes perfect sense as someone who's worked in journalism because like you interact with them all the time. But it made me, it made me worry about whether or not I was interested in politics and if there were other ways I could help the community more. But, you know, when you go to the University of Texas, at least, you have to apply with a major in mind. I originally had environmental science, but I didn't like chemistry and I would have to take chemistry class. And I was like, oh, no, I don't want that. Um, and so, you know, I was like, I'll figure it out. I'm going to switch to poli sci and I'll take a bunch of my core classes. And the first political class I was in like I, I knew I was hooked. Like I was like, oh, this is the major for me, even if it's not necessarily campaigning as a candidate. I don't have much interest in that. Um, studying the political machine that is this country mm-hmm. and looking at its inequities, its failings, but also ways that we really succeeded was really addicting to me. And that continued to define my academic career through Columbia. The University of Texas is a great school. It's a school in the city I grew up in. So I felt like I needed some distance from the entirety of like my childhood experience. I felt like I wasn't growing at the rate that I wanted to. Mm. And at least for me personally, I felt uh, like I wasn't as challenged by my classes as I would like to be, which I think is every student has a different experience with that because someone might rightfully say you can make what you want of any college experience and they'd be right to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, lucky, Luckily for me, I got a scholarship and so I would pay the same at either school. Um, and then I got to come here at, with the help of that professor who taught my first political science class, which I'm very lucky Wow. Wow. And so you've been at Columbia for, is would be sophomore, junior and senior year or? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. Wow. And so am I correct in understanding then um, in the context of your major, you're focusing in on American politics and, and sort of fo- really focusing on the American political system? So, so both, I mean, at um, the University of Texas, you can major in government or international relations. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. So they're kind of separate fields. At Columbia, you can major in political science and you have subfields. So I'm looking at American politics and comparative politics. So the one area I don't touch as much as IR or political theory, which are both really interesting fields, but they're not my two focuses. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything, I'm curious, um, this is sort of just the professor's curiosity in me coming Mm -hmm. up to, um, do you have any sort of way that you're wrapping up or capstoning your senior year, a project, a a paper? Is there any sort of big thing that you've been building to? I I think... Yeah, I, I suppose like two two projects that I'm looking at. I am in two seminar classes right now. Uh, one of them is a PhD course, which I've got very lucky to be in. Um, and yeah, I know the professor was super nice and everyone in that class is so smart. <laughs> it makes me super excited, but also very stressed whenever I walk in. I'm like, oh, I have an idea about this paper. And they're like, have you read all of this literature on this topic? I'm like, no, no, I haven't. But they're all really wonderful and kind. That class is causal inference and political economy, which is a a field I'm not super familiar with, but like the end project for that class is a paper, essentially the, the methods and theory part of a political science paper with the idea being that if you're a PhD student, you can then enact your plan and write a paper from it. Mm -hmm. It's really cool. I'm also in a political psychology seminar, which is technically in the psychology department, but I got to count for, uh, political science credit. And we have a final paper for that as well, which I think is really exciting. So I've enjoyed uh, working on both. Oh, that sounds like such a great way to sort of wrap up. So um, I I think now is probably a good time to circle back around to that 
that fateful first vote, the night of 2016. Sure. So this the, the question that this podcast is centered around is, is what the vote means to individuals. And of course, I'm, I'm interested in talking to folks who vote, but also talking to folks who don't vote. So I'm just curious if you could sort of, and it's hard to sort of separate the before and after the election results, um, but I'm curious if, if you could just maybe reflect a little bit on like what that act meant to you as you were doing it, as you were, you know, marking the ballots and, you know, casting a vote for the president and in other offices, is there, if there's any, any sort of thing that comes out or that uh, comes to mind thinking about that act. I miss the feeling of my first vote, not only because it was my first, um, but I haven't voted at a polling place in a really long time because since coming to Columbia, I voted absentee. Um, And there is something really special about lining up in front of a polling place and waiting to get to the machine plugging in your vote and then walking out with the sticker, knowing that you voted. For me, I woke up early one morning, went to my class, could like barely pay attention to what was happening, which is for a professor. Like he knew that he was teaching at a very excitable day. And I lined up around the Student Activity Center, which is the place on UT where students most often voted. Uh, And I was in line for an hour and I got inside. Um, When I walked in, I think a woman who was checking people in um, and reviewing our voter registration information, asked if my address was correct. And I said, yes. And she kind of looked at the paper for like a little bit. And I felt very nervous, even though like my address was definitely correct. And I had no reason to be nervous, but I felt a little antsy about it. And then she let me through mm-hmm. um, and I put down my vote. I, I didn't know what was going to happen that night more than other people across the United States. And I think part of that might be because I'm from Texas And so I know a lot of people who are Republicans. I know a lot of people who are Democrats who weren't a fan of the candidate. And like, so I wasn't, I, I more than other friends was just completely bewildered by what was going to happen later that evening. And, and so I just kind of left and I felt really proud of myself for doing my job and I felt excited to participate. Later that evening, I sat in the common area of my dorm with people I really didn't know. And we all watched the election results come in. And that was really cool, like, because I, I had never met these people before. They came from hallways that, like, I didn't super frequent or, you know, from, like, across the campus sometimes. They just wanted to hang out with friends, and we all watched the TV together as states started getting called. And, you know, people were very surprised by the outcome when Donald Trump was elected. Um, and I was one of the last people in the room because I just wanted to know what happened. Because um, I think eventually people were just, they kind of understood what was happening and wanted to go to bed. Mm-hmm. I remember the next day... Uh, my political science professor was going to give a talk on how Hillary Clinton had won the election. And that oh boy. So like in the morning, he just revamped his entire talk about what specifically polls misjudged, how we were all wrong, and the electoral math of how Donald Trump has won. And that was really helpful. So it sounds like you found it helpful to be able to kind of intellectualize the outcome a little bit and sort of look at it with the like political scientist lab coat for lack of a better way of putting it and, and get a sense of what happened um, the day after the election. Yeah, no, I think it was just my way of dealing with it, you know, cause I also like, I knew people who voted for Trump. This wasn't an alien concept to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of, a lot of people present it that way, you know, like this Trump voter is like, someone you don't know or someone with super different opinions from you. And that's not the case. And I guarantee that it's not the case. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was just a lot of conversations with people I was close with that I disagreed with. And 
yeah, wanting to know more, wanting to know why everyone was wrong. You know, that was the thing that bothered me the most. I was like, if, if, we, if I'm going to start going into a field that prides itself on quantitative analysis and prediction, I need to know why we messed up. And I need to know how we cannot do that again. And we still don't have answers on all of the, all of the reasons why polls were, quote, wrong. Because um, they just provide you with probabilistic inferences. Yep. And so when a low probability, high impact thing happens, it's not necessarily the poll's fault, but like we were consistently wrong across the board. Mm-hmm. So that was something that I thought was important to know. So th- there was a dissonance there that I think I was just using to, to deal with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Um, there, were, there were all, you know, I heard about all different ways in which folks who were um, shocked and challenged by the outcome, um, you know, the different ways in which they navigated that shock. So I just want to talk about the way campus felt the day after the election. Oh, that so, would be great. Yeah. Um, so Texas is a pretty conservative state. I'm sure your listeners are aware of that. Austin is not. And UT is a really interesting school because it draws students from all over the state and all over the country. So it was an interesting microcosm of what the state and country was thinking at that moment. I was walking to my internship that I had at the time and there were like, you know, uh, a couple people in like MAGA hats celebrating and like walking towards me, um, which made sense, you know? And I think they noticed that I wasn't. uh, And so they kind of like stared at me and booed and then kept walking. Uh, so it, it felt weirdly like being in this like eternal sports game. Like it, like people were still celebrating their wins and uh, being sad about their losses. Uh, and then like quickly that night, there were protests scheduled and the campus kind of erupted and both people that were very happy about the outcome and people that weren't. Um, so it certainly isn't your image of, I don't know, the classical American college campus where everyone was deeply upset and moved. Um, some people were really happy and they felt heard and they felt like they're, they would finally seen by a major like party candidate. So it really split the campus. So yeah, you had mentioned that you, um, you know, had that, you know, people who supported um, uh, President Trump in his election bid. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, it sounds like you were able to have conversations with them. Did you feel like you were able to maintain uh, a connection or relationship with them sort of in the wake of, of the election? Yeah, so I wasn't super close with any of these people to begin with. I, there were people I knew, I knew for sure, but I guess I want to be transparent in this fact that none of the none of, none of of the people in 2016 that I know were really strong Trump supporters are now in my closest circle of friends. But I was certainly able to keep talking with them and keep asking them questions. And sometimes they wouldn't want to talk about politics, which would be fine. I know I'm a political science major and I love talking about it, uh, but not everyone does. And this isn't to say that I don't think voting is important or I don't think your choices have weight. Because I, I thought their choices did have a weight. And I thought, in my personal opinion, that was harmful to me, you know, um, as an Indian woman growing up in the United States, as a person of color, and as someone who has empathy for the immigrant experience, mm-hmm. my parents were immigrants, I, like, I didn't agree with them. And it was more than just a policy disagreement. I think it had implications because politics is important and has personal implications. Um, that didn't mean that I was going to excommunicate them for my life. And I think people have different opinions on this, and I think they have every right to have a different opinion than me. But when half the country votes for a guy, I don't think we can do well just to cut every one of those individuals out of our lives. I think that does us a disservice. Mm-hmm. This isn't me like preaching like peace for everyone or anything, but, but I think it's important to keep those conversations open and be able to be honest with each other and figure out why they like the candidate so much. Um, or why they compromised and decided to vote for him. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and you're you're speaking to sort of the the small d democratic norm of a deliberative democracy. Um, and, it, and it sounds like that's something that you were able to engage in after the election, which is really remarkable, I think, just given how high uh, emotions were and sort of how charged responses were. Um, it's a really like powerful thing to be able to do. So I, I applaud you for that. That's really amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I, I think more people in my immediate friend group are people who didn't vote. So people that either were morally opposed to voting because it made them complicit with a corrupt political machine, that's something I heard a lot, um, or specifically were opposed to the two candidates brought to them, like mm. this philosophy of a false choice that I'm hearing again this election. So from the same people, from some different people, and I think we fundamentally disagree on that, but it, I think that is usually the disagreement I have more frequently with my friends is whether or not you were going to vote, not who are you going to vote for. Mm, yeah, yeah. And and that's, um, oh gosh, I want to talk to folks like that too, um, because I'm, I'm just so, so curious about those mindsets. You know, I think we spend a lot of time as political scientists thinking about, you know, the voters, people who actually vote themselves and what makes them do that. But uh, I, I want to understand what's going on um, in the mindsets of non-voters too. So it's, that's really illuminating to think about. So yeah, I, I think to sort of wrap up, it might be worth reflecting on. Um, we've now had midterm elections since the 2016 elections and, you know, a slew of local elections as well. Um, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure Texas is famous for having a lot <laughs> A lot yeah. of local elections. So I'm, I'm curious if there's anything that has stood out for you in your time voting since then, um, if there's any moments that stand out or any um, new meaning that you've derived from the act over the last couple of years. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, so <laughs> absentee voting in Texas has always been kind of hard. They're not the only state that does this, but in Texas, you have to mail in your ballot to apply to vote. And then they send you a ballot and if everything goes well, you send that ballot back and then your vote's counted, which should work like a charm, but it doesn't always do that. Uh, every year I voted absentee, I've had to call the office or fix something. And that is not because of everyone at the Travis County election office. They're all wonderful. I think they're understaffed. Um, but I think it's just very difficult to vote. Uh, this year, I was trying to vote in the Texas primary and I ended up spending $88 on the enterprise, which is unacceptable one and like really hard for me personally like that was gosh I think I put it down like a halal cart meal count costs five dollars right eighty eight dollars that would be like six even like 17 halal cart meals right and that was a lot and luckily like I had the money to do that um and I just really wanted my vote to count but it was horrendous. And to briefly explain what happened. Yeah, yeah, please do. Please do. Yeah, sure. I, I sent in my ballot application um, and I sent it in early and I was like, I don't want this, anything to happen. I don't want to risk anything. I'm going to use priority shipping using the U.S. Postal Service. So I did. Uh, and that cost me like 20 something ish dollars, which I like, that was annoying, but I live in New York. We're kind of far away from Texas. I just want to get it over with. And I used the address recommended on the Travis County Election Commissioner's website. So I did that. I didn't hear anything for about a week. Uh, and so I called them and they hadn't received my ballot yet, which was a problem because the deadline was the next day. And so I quickly emailed them, which you can do. You can email them your application, but then you have to mail in that same application within four business, four days of that email being received. 
I don't entirely understand the logic behind that. But because I had done that, that meant my deadline was extended until that Monday. So I had to play priority shipping again. And this time a very nice woman in the mailroom let me know, hey, you should use uh, UPS or FedEx, a contract carrier, and mail it to the address fee list for that instead, which felt a little silly because I was voting and I should be able to use the U.S. Postal Service when I vote. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like I was grateful for the advice and I did it. And at this point we were at 50-ish something dollars, which was quite a lot. And then I was just waiting for my ballot to arrive. Uh, and I waited and I waited and it was a Friday before Super Tuesday and I called them and they said they were doing the best they could to get them out on time, which I believe. Uh, but I didn't get my ballot until the night before Super Tuesday, like at 9 p.m. I remember getting a text on my phone, um, you know, the mail center letting me know that there was an envelope. Uh, and so that meant I had to use expedited shipping to make sure it got to Texas on time to be counted in the primary, which was another chunk of money. So that came out to $88. And even if my ballot application wasn't lost the first time, it would have cost $55 for me to vote. This speaks to my privilege, really because it was so convoluted and difficult this time around, more than it had ever been, which is really frustrating as someone who studies political science. And then you realize that voting is still so inaccessible in this country and it's not equally available to everyone. And I, gosh, I, I might have $88 to spare and to budget around for to vote, you know, because I've, I've saved up and I have the financial support of my parents at this point, you know. But not everyone does, and it's an unreasonable amount of money to ask. So. Wow, wow. Well, okay, a couple of things come to mind. Yeah. One, kudos to you for knowing the intricacies of Texas election law and <laughs> and sort of what, what's needed in timelines for absentee um, absentee voting. But yeah, also, this is just such a fascinating thing to hear about in the midst of greater calls for vote-by-mail uh, elections in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. And I think sort of your experience highlights the need for resources for, for USPS for local election officials, because you know so many of these things can get lost and lost in translation, so to speak. Um, so, wow, wow, that sounds so frustrating. It, did it do anything to dampen your enthusiasm for voting? No, it just it made me really <laughs> upset. I mean, I think it made me worried about voting in November. Though I don't know where I'm going to be graduating then, so I'll probably re-register wherever I I live after after graduation. Um, so perhaps it will be less difficult. But in case we do mail by voting, I'm worried about the potential costs. I'm worried about things being lost. Um, I think that, like, you probably even read that, like, a thousand Wisconsin ballots weren't counted because they didn't have a postmark on them, yeah. right? Um, and this isn't to say that I don't think mail by voting is a good idea, because I think that it's necessary. There are people, even before this pandemic, who couldn't make it to the polls because they needed to work or they can get there because they it, the polls aren't accessible to some people uh, in a purely physical sense. Like a lot of the polling stations I knew in Austin, like unless, unless you have them at a school, there are a bunch of stairs everywhere. Mm -hmm. You couldn't do the actual polls because there were no ramps to help you to do so. So yeah, no, I, I'm anxious about it, perhaps more than I was before. Um, but these problems aren't new. I think they've just become prescient in my mind because of my personal experience. Uh, so I'm grateful that I'm aware now in a way that I should have been before, but I wasn't. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. I, I mean, that that's, that story, I, I can't tell you the number of times I've heard stories similar to yours from my own students about absentee voting um, and, and the challenges associated with it. And that it's that remote interaction that's most difficult to navigate because, as you know, in the polling place, issues can get resolved right then and there. And it's... Absolutely. Yeah, it's not the case um, with with the remote interaction with vote by mail. With that story, I called the my local county office every, like every day. Like I, I call them maybe fifteen times. I'm a college student. I can call them between nine a.m. and five p.m. And they everyone probably knew my name at that point, um, and they knew why I was calling. Um, but I think the reason that I got my ballot at all, or at least I, I'd like to believe, was because I advocated for myself and made sure that they couldn't forget. And to the staff's credit, um, they were all trying to help me. They let me talk to whoever I needed to. They were all trying to figure out what went wrong and why. Um, but the average American isn't gonna have the time to call a county office every day of the week, once a day, um, because they'll be working. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and it's another one of those hidden costs associated with voting that isn't always on the forefront of our minds. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think by way of closing, I'll just ask if there's um, anything else about sort of the vote or democracy that you would like to add in terms of what what those two things mean to you. Gosh, I mean, okay, in class, we learn about expressive voting and strategic voting, right? Oh, yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think that's going to be a big question uh, in this 2020 election. So we vote to express our political opinions, to let the country's political systems know what we want out of a candidate, what we want out of a political regime, um, the issues that are important to us, uh, and to express who we are. And that's a really important component of voting. Uh, in a country like ours with a two-party system, or even in multi-party system countries, you also vote for strategy. So some people will vote to make sure the candidate they like the most, even if they don't like them that much, wins, or to avoid a candidate they really dislike. And I think that what we're seeing is an argument about the two forms of voting and which one of them is legitimate. I think most people vote with both of those causes in mind. Um, but you know, it's it's going to it's going to be remain to be seen how many Americans are going to engage in strategic voting this November as opposed to just expressive. Mm, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, and 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 you highlight one of the one of the major complaints with the two party system. We've sort of come up a couple of times during our conversation, sort of the the limited choices that we that we have. Thank you so so much for taking the time to to speak with me. I I really really truly appreciate it. I know that there's a lot that students in particular have going on in the midst of everything. Um, so I I really really value the time. That's all for this week, folks. Tune in next week when we hear from Mark Stickney, an HVAC engineer, musician, and actor from Chicago, Illinois. Many thanks, as always, to William Lee, our sound engineer and composer of the podcast theme music.